Welcome to Hope Beyond the Badge, a podcast that brings awareness, inspiration, and conversation together for first responders, families, and others interested in mental well-being in first response. New episodes weekly with your hosts, Jay Bailey and Linda Kokoros. Jay is a father, a military veteran, worked in the fire service for 18 years, and carries a diagnosis of PTSD. Linda is a mom, a wife, a certified life coach for first responders, and a suicide loss survivor of a first responder. Let's talk about it. Today we have Sergeant Kevin Harrington in the studio with us. Kevin began his law enforcement career in 1986 as a member of the Braintree Auxiliary Police Department. He attended Northeastern University in Boston from 86 to 1990, earning a Bachelor of Science degree in criminal justice. Kevin has accomplished much and been assigned many roles over the course of his career to include the DARE School Resource Officer, was recently promoted to sergeant, is a founding member of the Southeastern Massachusetts Law Enforcement Council, Peer Support Unit, and recently became the co-director. He's also the Department Outreach Officer for the Plymouth County Outreach Program and recently became the handler for the Whitman Police Comfort Dog, NOLA. So, Kevin, we're very happy to have you with us in studio today. We're looking forward to hearing about your career and uh, discussing mental health and first response with you. Would you mind first just introducing yourself briefly to our audience? Yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, like you said, my name's Kevin Harrington. I'm a sergeant with the Whitman Police Department. Uh, I grew up in the town of Braintree. Uh, my parents actually still live there. Uh, my mother is a lifelong resident of Braintree for 88 years. Wow. Uh, so uh, I started my law enforcement career as a Braintree Auxiliary Police Officer in 1985. And from there, uh, while I was going to Northeastern University, I did my co-op jobs with the Braintree Police Department also. So I kind of got to see the inner workings of a police department, the administrative side, along with the patrol side. Uh, I've wanted to be a police officer my whole life. I can't even remember why. I have two uncles that were Weymouth police officers. Oh. Uh, so they uh, they've since retired, but they kind of, you know, seeing them growing up was like, oh wow, that's really a cool cool job I want to do. And then uh, so I went to Northeastern, uh, graduated in 1990. Of course, I started looking for jobs, and it was kind of uh, proposition two and a half times, so nobody was hiring. So yeah. I took the test for the Harvard University Police Department, and I got hired by them. They sent me to the full time academy. I worked for the Harvard University Police Department for f- approximately 15 years. And I got on the Whitman Police Department first as a reserve intermittent police officer and then as a full-time police officer in 2007. I started as the I started right away as the dare officer, school resource officer. Uh-huh. And then uh, recently I got promoted in September to the rank of sergeant and now I'm back on patrol. Um, I live in, I do still live in Whitman uh, with my wife, Wendy Winters Harrington. 
who you know very well, Linda. I do. <laughs> I do. And my daughter, Julia, who's a senior at Roger Williams University, and she's getting her degree in forensic science with a, a biology track and a minor in psychology. Wow. That sounds like she's probably going to be following in your footsteps somewhere. Yeah, she wants to do the crime scenes. She doesn't want the lab. She wants to be out in the road and the crime scene. So her ultimate goal is to work for the FBI. Wow. Wow. Well, you need a couple years of experience, local or state, and then hopefully. Be able to get into that area where she wants to be. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. So you live in Whitman. I do. And I just want to also share with our li- listeners that we have um, Whitman's comfort dog in here with us tonight in the studio, too. Maybe we'll get her to st- tell us a little bit uh, later on. we got to do a little she, she may. talking. You never she, know. She does talk a lot. Yeah. Well, she's yeah. In, at the moment enjoying some sort of a bone or, or a, uh, a, what do you call one of those things? It's a chew. A chew, it's like a, yeah. a chew thing. Yep. And she's quite happy sitting there, lying there on the, on the floor right beside or handler. Um, Kevin, we're so happy to have you in here tonight. I'm we're, happy to be here. We're very, very happy to have you in. And, and we've been trying to get you in for a while. Um, but um, work comes first, right? And and different things happen. So we're, we're here tonight. And we're very, very happy and privileged to have you in. So let's go Let's go back to, to that beginning. Like you said in, in, in one of the parts of your, you know, a little bit about yourself. Um, was that you started off like an auxiliary. Like, how old were you then? Like, like a young, you were a young pup then, I right? I was... Should I be saying n- that? 19. <laughs> I was, think I was 19 when I started. 19. 19. As an auxiliary wow. um, yeah. police officer in yeah. Braintree. Yep. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that for listeners who are not in first response, right? We want them to be able to relate with what all this is about. What's auxiliary police mean? So, auxiliary police, we basically fell under the Braintree Civil Defense, but we also worked for the police department. It was strictly volunteer, no pay. Uh, wow. we, we would patrol all town property on the weekends, Friday and Saturday night. Uh, you know, we may have answered minor calls, like maybe barking dog calls or something like that. Yeah. And then we also were uh, sworn as a special police officer, so we could work details, so we got paid for that. Oh, Wow. All right, so I never knew that. So I learned something new with yeah. every every interview that we do, right? And, and unfortunately, because of the police reform and, and the post, most towns have gotten rid of their auxiliary police departments. We're lucky in the town of Whitman, we still have ours, and most, uh, most of those officers are currently or in the process of being certified as police officers Wow! by the state. So. Wow. So to be an auxiliary police officer, just confirming, because I might want to go and apply to be an auxiliary <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> officer, right? Why not? You don't have to have, you like, go to an academy, No, right? not, now you do. Before, you just had to go to what they call a, re- a reserve academy. Mm. That's what I did. It was like, a, you know, twice a week at night, mm. you know, learn the basic laws and stuff like that. Yeah. And then, you know, you go out. Because you, you weren't really doing a lot of police work. It was more of just patrolling town buildings. And then, you know, if you came upon something, you would call, the call it in. You call yeah. it in and they'd send a, you know, a regular police officer down and they'd yeah. know, take care of it. So, all right. Okay. Perfect. So Whitman does that still? Yeah. Whitman and does that. It's are actually, they volunteered up or are they still volunteer or did they uh, get yep. paid? So they, they volunteer, uh, they, uh, ride in the cruise of, uh, Saturday nights. They answer calls. We send them the calls. They're, 
like I said, right now with police reform, they're sort of most of them are certified or in, currently getting their certification. Yeah. So they can perform all police functions, and they work. They actually, if, if we can't fill our overtime, they're able to work the overtime. So wow. it, it's it's great for a small department because it it takes the you know the onus off of us to fill everything, and yeah. if we can't work, they, they work, and they get to do some you know police work and. And things like that. So. Yeah, and obviously, if someone's volunteering right and doing something like that, well, obviously they have a calling to it, right? They want to do it, right? Right. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. yeah. I love that. Yeah. I want to do that. I want to have blue lights. <laughs> I'm, I'm keeping trying to get blue lights on my car. Um, so I love that. Thank you for sharing with us. So tell us a little bit about yourself, like as your experience. As you said, I've always wanted to do that. Yeah. So I don't. I've never really wanted to do anything else. I. I I was interested maybe the Coast Guard also, mm. like, but the, it's like a law enforcement thing. Yeah. And, um, well, like I said, my two uncles were Weymouth police officers. Yeah. Um, if I can give them a shout out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Paul and Bobby Burke, the Burke brothers. Okay. Uh, so they were my mother's brothers. Still, they're still alive. Yeah. Um, but, you know, just seeing them around, talking to them, it kind of influenced me. You know, it's like, hey, that's a cool job. You know, the uniform and the, yeah. you know all that stuff. And, yeah. And even like shows like Adam Twelve and and things like that. You know, like Chips. I, I still well, I still watch Adam Twelve. Okay. My, I got my daughter into it. She watches yeah. Adam Twelve too. So things like that, and you know, Bonnie Miller and and shows like that. You know, like kind of influenced me a lot and. And then I, you know, I worked my way, you know, I w- went to school for criminal justice and yeah. got my bachelor's degree. And then when I was at Harvard, they actually paid for me to get my master's degree. So I have a master's in criminal justice administration. Good for you. Good for you. It sounds like from what you've just described, like your your two uncles, right, yeah. um, was that you, you had some admiration for them, right. right? As you said, you described it as seeing them in the uniform and, and that was cool right to see that but I think maybe that's where the inspiration sort of came from like looking at them with the uniforms and there was some oh, I want to be like that right? right like a role model they were your role models like for that correct to go into that I love that yeah. um so working your way up right you you went to Harvard Harvard when you you got your master's in criminal justice and then you you went on to um become f- was a full time in Whitman? You, you well, I, uh, for two years, approximately two years, I was a reserve intermittent part time police officer. It was a it's a civil service rank. It's just yeah. It's just a way of uh, departments to build a list so they don't have to like call civil service all the time. Yeah, they'll just pull off the reserve list. Okay. So I did that for two years while I was full time at Harvard. Wow. And then when did you get on to Whitman? Uh, so I got on Whitman as a reserve in 2005. In 2007, I took the full-time position. Excellent. All right. And then you've been there ever since. Been there ever since, right. yeah. How many years? Tell us, I can't do the math fast enough. Uh, it's about 17 years About now. 17 yep. years now? Yep. So right when you got on um, the Whitman um, Police Department, you you were, became the SRO officer, which is school resource officer, right? Right. Um, Share with us a little bit, Dan. I know you've been a long time DARE um, right. program, yep. right, uh, yep. officer. Share with us a little bit about that part of your journey. So, really, when when I come on to Whitman, it was like uh, everything's done by shift bidding. So, they put out the, the DARE officer's job, and I'm like, 
I don't want that job. Like, I want to be a police officer. I came here to be a police officer. Like, I don't want <laughs> to deal with I, kids. I don't want to work in the schools. I don't want to do this. It's like, it's not for me, you know. I, I've just worked with college kids for 15 years now. Yeah. Know, so, so, and unfortunately, not unfortunately, fortunately for me, uh, it, as the, um, the lowest man, I, I, nobody bid the job, so it actually went to me. Oh, it's just given to you. <laughs> yes, but yes, because nobody yeah. nobody bid it. Yeah. So you know, and then I had to, you know, tell my go home and tell my wife because she's work used to me working midnights. Yeah. For, mm. for our entire, you know, f- first my, you know, first years of our marriage, yeah. I was on midnights at Harvard because my daughter we we didn't have to put her in daycare or anything, so um, yeah. so I had to go home and tell, hey, I'm going days five days a week, you know. And uh, how was that received? Uh, she was like, "Really? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're changing up our whole system, yeah, our routine." Yeah. So yeah. So we did that. So once I started getting into the job, I'm like, oh, "This is a pretty good job, you know, dealing with the, the students, dealing with the kids, yeah. um, dealing with the administration. It's a different side of policing. Mm. Um, you know, everybody thinks of police officers. Oh, they're rough and tough, and you know, they don't." You know, but you, you deal with kids. It's like, oh, you have to come yeah, to that level, right? And, and and some of it's is they don't have a positive role model at home. Yeah. So they they come and talk to you, and you know they be you know they befriend you, and you, you have conversations, and you kind of. And me doing it for like seventeen years, I became a member of the the school community. So people yeah. knew me as Officer Harrington, the school resource officer. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How does that feel? Like, um, I'm going to get in because you, you also deal, dealt with, you know, young adults, right, in college. Yep. yep. And I'll go back to that in a minute because you sort of led me into all this type of conversation. Um, how does that feel um, to you when you're interacting with kids at school? Um, knowing that you can be a positive um, role model for um, some students that might not have it, as you said, right? And also a male figure, right, in their lives. Um, So uh, what does that feel like to you? Like, what has that grown into for you being able to to do that? You're not like just the officer saying, hey, get back into your class or whatever that type of thing, but you're able to have a a positive impact on the child, right? Right. What's that that feel like to you? Oh, it's a great feeling. And, you know, me coming out of the schools now and going back to patrol, I I really do miss it. Like, I I Mm. miss the interaction with the kids and just seeing them in the morning and, you know, getting the high fives and, you know, the fist pumps and, yeah, you know, just having conversations with me and and things like that. I really, I do really miss that. Yeah, um, but it, you know, it's a great job. It's probably the best job in policing. If anybody tells you it's not, we got to talk to an SRO. Mm. Uh, Alex was also an SRO for yeah. for Abington. Yeah, and uh, he loved he loved interacting with the kids yeah. too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, that that being said, you also worked with young adults, right? Um, someone else's kid right. um, in in college for a long time. What's the difference? Uh, like, what was the difference? <laughs> I can see his uh, for our listeners. He just did an ex- exhale, like, oh, very different. What was that like? So, college kids are different, mm. but Harvard college kids are totally different. Share with they us. They all they all come from 
you know, most come from rich families, entitled, you know. Yeah. I'm not saying them all, but, yeah. you know, they come from en- entitled families. And, you know, just the interaction with them is like, you know, more of like, you know, oh, I can have your job and, you know, things like that. Yeah. yeah but not at all, all. I mean, most of the kids were great. You know, yeah. we, uh, but then when I, when I first came there, we had, we had a chief that was a ex-Boston deputy superintendent and shortly after, probably a couple of years later, we had a new chief that came in from the state police, and he implemented a community policing program. Got us into the dining halls. You know, we would we would get to sit down to dinner with the kids, and mm. uh, we had community policing substations all across the university. So we would man them and and uh, like mountain bike units and things like that. Yeah. So you know, it was a it was a good interaction. But yeah. sometimes, you know, especially at night on the weekends when the kids, you know, had maybe a little bit Party too much in. to drink, had, yeah. you know, they would, you know, sometimes, you know, it would get the fact that some of them were entitled and they didn't yeah. care who you were. And yeah. You know, you work for us and things sort like of, that. Sort of like a little lack of respect, right. right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's what that sounds like to me. Was there during those times like any difficult situations like that you, you know, you had to deal with within, um, you know, within the college community? As far as I mean, I'm very familiar with you know college. I have three kids that went to college, yeah. right? Uh, well, now five to. To be honest, what was I talking about there? I was going back way back when, um, but like five of them went through, you know, the college experience, and you know what I've known um, to be, you know, sort of difficult situations that they had witnessed, right? Um, with also mental health, right? right. In, in the college situation, had you any of those type of incidents that you had to deal with? Yeah, so especially at Harvard, like everybody was number one from their school. So yeah. Th- so they would come to pressure. Ha- the pressure. Um, I mean, the, the suicide rate at uh, Ivy League school like that was incredible. I mean, you probably don't hear much about it on the news and things like that. Yeah. But um, wow. yeah, it was it, it was. I mean, my my whole time there, fifteen years, it was probably about ten suicides. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's a and, lot. and it was the you know the pressure and you know the, the not being not being number one anymore, and you know we have to deal with all the the other the yeah. other students. So how did how did you guys as police officers in in in, in that situation? How did you how how were you able to deal with it, and what support did you guys get? Well, unfortunately, back then yeah. it was just like you go to the call, you handle it, and you go back to your cruiser and. See you later. Go go to the next call. Yeah. Um, kind of one th- one that sticks out in my mind is that, and it probably it's probably over twenty years now, and I can still see it. I still know exactly where I was, what I did, what the person looked like, and all that stuff. I can see it in my mind. Wow, all um, those years ago. Yep. And actually, I had a sergeant back then who went to the chief. And said, "Hey, these guys might need to talk to somebody." He says, "Nope, that was it." And she, she was like, "She was like, I tried." And I mean, she was she was awesome, Sergeant. And mm. she, you know, she was for the guys, and and she tried to she tried to get us to be able to talk to somebody mm. if we needed to. Mm. And uh, the chief just kind of resisted it and said, "Nope, they're all set." 
Yeah. So when you think back then, right, um, like you just describing that experience, especially one particular one, that obviously that hit you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, more than maybe the others, or maybe it, from others that you have, with, you know, been involved in. Um, that was just sort of, and my backpack is like overflowing right here, right now, yeah. right? And and that's why it sort of stuck with you, right? Um, and And then you also describe like, you know, what was the help or what was the support? And it was basically none, right, from the chief that was um, um, in charge there at the time, right? Nope, get back in your cruiser and yep. they're done. They're, they're okay. And when you think about that, right, I, I think even some departments also still, right, um, now, even today, um, that's what a lot of, especially police officers, right, um, when they're finished the call, they're still on shift, yep. right? And and they have to go sit in their cruiser and think about all this stuff that's going on or not. And uh, and that's hard. We've had a lot of police officers share that with us. Um, I just had to get them back from the cruiser and, and pray that there wasn't an, not going to be another call coming in. Yep. I can't, I can't, because they're not present, right? They're just thinking about that last call that just hit them. Jay, do you want to chime in? Yeah, I guess I'm sitting here wondering... Um, is that when you think that you began to get passionate about mental health and first response, or, or did it come later, or, or do you know when that was? Mm, um, a great question. I, I, I think it came later, but it, that always stuck in the back of my mind that how, how the sergeant asked me, do you, want, do you want to talk to somebody? And I'm like, that that's great. you know. But I didn't know, like, I don't even know if we had the resources back then. Mm. Right. You know, it might have been an EAP through the university that they yeah. might have sent me to. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as, as time went on, you know, um, my my chief in Whitman, he actually put out a, a training for the critical incident, uh, Grin, the Grin class. Yeah. And anybody that, you know, was interested, so I'm like, that sounds that sounds interesting. You know, I have I I have a a long career. You know, I've done a lot. I've seen a lot. I, I, it's something that I would probably be interested in. I went to the class, mm. and you know, and I'm sitting there, and you know, some of those guys were involved in shootings and and, and yeah. things like that. And I'm like, oh, I I don't know if I can do this because they have all that experience. I don't. But then then as you go through the class, you learn. Everybody has something that they can bring to the the team. You know, um, you know, you you don't have to be involved in the shooting. You can be involved in other stuff and yeah. and just just your experiences along yeah. along the line. Yeah, well, just your own experience of how you felt after that particular incident in in college, right? Or all those incidents, you bring that to the table um, of how you felt. That's also relatable with someone else that's struggling and it might not have to be a shooting an officer involved shooting right but it could be just that they're having a hard time right i right. am able to l- relate with them that so i'm glad that you actually you know kept the courage right to to go through the class and not sort of say comparing right, right to other yeah. people who you felt that they fit this bill um to be able to do that um, i might not be able to i want to do that class yeah um um I just think it's beneficial all around um, to be able to um, help someone be able to get through maybe just a tough time temporarily, right? They might just need someone to talk to. Right. Um, so I love that. Thank you for doing that. Um, 
Yeah, I I think that's such an important point that that you just touched on because it it sort of um, it participates with how we stigmatize ourselves sometimes. Like if the only people that are that are speaking up and advocating for mental health are those members of first response that have been exposed to the most extreme traumas, then everybody else and and these things that anybody that does the job uh, for any amount of time. They see some calls, some you know, trauma, death, many different forms, many different ways, um, and if everybody, like, how do they understand how they're feeling if the only representatives are those members that have been to the in the most extreme environments? And um, I, I think that when you know you often hear, don't compare, try to relate, but I think it's important, um, you know, for for people to fill these roles that are relatable to a range or a spectrum of experience within the field of first response. Um, so I, I guess I would ask, we talk about stigma a lot on, on this, this program, on this podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about what any thoughts that you have on stigma, what it is, or just what you think about it? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, like now, I think it's with peer support and the critical ones teams, it's like, it's not a stigma anymore. It's like, it's okay to ask for help. But years ago, it was like, you know, you're weak. You know, they're going to take your gun. They're going to send you away. You're going to lose your job, things like that. And, you know, it's, it, 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 it didn't have to be that way. Mm. But unfortunately, it, it, it was. And, you know, guys were afraid to speak. Mm. You know, they didn't want to show weakness. Mm. And, um, you know, like I've always said, Every call affects somebody a different way. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a call that I go to that I could just walk away from, yeah, hey, no no problem, might affect somebody else. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it's good to have that, that peer support network and, and be able to call somebody, even, even even you know, anonymously call somebody and say talk to them and, yeah. and, and just, you know, get it all out and, you know. Yeah. Let it get off the chest. I you, can I follow up on this, Jay? Yes, ma'am. Um, so I hear you referring. I know you're in, uh, you know, peer support, and you're 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 part of the SEMLEC. Can you can you tell us what that means, SEMLEC? So SEMLEC is Southeastern Mass Law Enforcement Council. So we consist of 31 cities and towns in Plymouth and Bristol counties, uh, which encompasses SEMLEC. Um, so we. Um, and I I like the regional peer support because a lot of times guys don't want to talk to guys in their own department. Yeah, they'd rather talk to somebody, you know. So we kind of try and make it so like if somebody from Whitman needs to talk to somebody, they're talking to somebody from Taunton, or they're talking to somebody from, you know, a, another town far out. So they, yeah, don't, they don't want to talk. Sometimes they don't want to talk to someone they know. Right. Yeah. So um, it's. It's, you know, peer-driven, clinically supported unit. Um, we strictly strictly deal with uh, police officers. We're all police officers on the team, except for our, we have uh, four clinicians mm. um, that have gone through the grin class, have gone through the suicide class. Uh, so they're, they're all certified, and we have to be certified through the state uh, peer support network. Nola, Nola wants to talk to me for for a sick minute there. <laughs> or, or, or she's looking for a treat or some food or something like that. Maybe I don't know how it is. Um, so, what I what 
when you're when you're saying um you know that it's all police officers are driven and you have four clinicians right are the clinicians support the police officers or go out on calls to the community no the clinicians uh they don't do any of the stuff in the community they're just there to support us yeah in, in, on, on the team yeah and um so like if we when we go to a debriefing uh debriefing yeah. happens probably uh you know three to four days after an incident Mm. And it will be, you know, the peers and we'll have a clinician that will be there just in case somebody, somebody. Mm. you know, somebody has mental health issues and, and you know. And, Some challenges, right? Right, and they can, they, can, they can see it. We can't, you know. Mm. Um, so, so, our, so that's what our clinicians do. And then uh, our um, head clinician, she actually will take some of the, you know, people from, the calls and she'll talk to them and either she'll take them on as clients or send them out to somewhere else. Okay. Excellent. So I just want to snap back on that. I know because you are dealing with right. A lot of different calls every day. Right. I'm sure. Um, from different instances or just one-on-one calls, right. That someone is calling and wants to talk to somebody. Um, I still also believe that, you know, what Jay touched on, like what the stigma mean to you and, um, you know, just in general talking about it. And you, you start to refer back to like back then, um, you know, in the departments way back then, there was no support like what you referred to as the Harvard chief, um, you know, not, not giving you any support. Um, even, even if you didn't need it, you knew it wasn't going to happen. Right. Because of the interaction when the sergeant like was trying to intervene. Right. But I do also feel, that regardless of what any of the peer support units, um, you know, deal with on an everyday basis, there definitely is, right, that support for officers. But I also feel that there still is a stigma. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's when, when suicide ends in first response and we don't see any numbers, well, then... This big this change has made dramatically right, but there still is so many numbers of suicide and first response all around the country, um, where guys, men and women have not talked about it and had not did not gain the courage to be able to speak about it with anybody, um, not in the in the department and not with any of their peer support units, but also to their family, right? And uh, you know they end up dying by their own hands. And it's still bigger um, number than an officer dying in the line of duty in force response, right? Um, so there is still a huge stigma there. And there is still officers that sit in a cruiser by themselves and ponder over what they just witnessed and what they just saw, what they just dealt with. And um, and that's okay. Nola's letting us know that she is here. Um, and letting you all know that she is here in the room with us during the interview. Oh! during the interview (laughs) so she wants more treats from her handler I think from I don't know what you call dad by her his dad or whatever it is Um, she has lots of different things to occupy her right here now so do you want to do you want to elaborate on that a little bit like what we just talked about like um, there is still that going on and how how do you how do we how do we continue to be better, serve the community or the need, or maybe create safe environments 
for a first office uh, first responder to be able to feel safe and secure in sharing what's what they what's going on with them. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, you know, I I, I still think you know, and even going to the debriefings and the defusings, a mm. lot of the, it's a lot of the older officers say, "I wish they had this when I was younger." Yeah, mm. you know. it's okay. Sorry. No, uh, you know, I, I wish they had this when I was younger and I'm glad you guys came and, and, and they're the they're the ones that will open up more than the younger officers. But once they open up, you see the younger officers start to open up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that example gets set, right? In in the same way that in in the past the example of suck it up and drive on would be set by those that, that gener you know, the the more senior generation as well and then uh, modeled and, and adapted uh, by those junior officers, first responders. Yeah, absolutely. I I feel that yes, once that that um that senior officer, just like what Jay said, that senior officer has sort of shown some um form of it's okay, it's okay to talk about that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Then the junior, the new guys coming in are sort of also going to feel a little bit more comfortable in sharing whatever whatever way the culture in the departments is. Bring it out, right? Yes, ma'am. So, in your department, like, um, as far as like the peer support, we know that you're into all of that. But in your own department, today, is there a, an environment where guys are okay coming and talking about whatever they they see or the stresses of the job or some stuff? Um, so, when I first got there, you know, there was no no support, no nothing. You know, it was just kind of go do your job and. Yeah, and then, then like I said, I went to the class, and I think it was like 2015 or so, and then Semwick formed the unit. I got on the unit, and so we have gone to every police department. We've talked at roll calls. We've let them know, you know, we have a 24-hour number. They we're can, here. Yeah, we're here. Getting people to use it is another the, story. Is another story. Yeah, mm. you know, it's there. Um, like if I see something in my department. I will probably pull somebody aside and say, hey, are you all right? You need mm. to talk to somebody. Mm. And then then basically if they say, yeah, then I would I would give them the number and, or I would call somebody in the department, say, uh, on the, the unit and say, hey, can somebody reach out to this person? Yeah. And I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want to know about it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the good thing about the, the peer support units is that they are uh, strictly confidential. Yeah. Absolutely, uh, so they what, need to be right. So what? Yeah. So whatever, whatever we say uh, is strictly confidential. Mm. Chief can't even make me tell what what was said. So yeah. which is which is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely, and, and it should be. I mean, otherwise, someone's never going to have confidence, right? right. I mean, that's why a lot. I I feel in just from our own experience, right, as a family who lost a first responder, I think that. Um, uh, a lot of times, a first responder, a police officer, a fire, it doesn't matter what uniform they wear. Um, a lot of times, they're, they're worried about their business, right? Right. Getting out. They don't right. want other people to know about it unless they are sharing it themselves. Exactly. And um, with others or or maybe, you know what, this is, this is what I went through. If someone noticed them that they were, you know, behavioral changes what's going on with this guy right and then um and then all of a sudden they notice that they're starting to starting to be well again right? right and back to their old self type of thing um 
you know, more than likely they're going to say, you're doing well, you're doing quite well. And more than likely a first responder will say, I've got some help. You know right. what I mean? And and they'll be able to also help others right in the department. But I know that just just from, you know, myself and Jay talking about mental health and sharing and how how important it is for someone to feel secure and safe, right, to, to be able to share their deepest, what they're carrying inside. Um, it definitely has to be confidential. You know? right. oh, and, yeah. and Chief Kennedy was just in from Quincy. Um, was we just aired his his interview last week, and he said, you know, he didn't realize um, that that it was how much um, someone who did peer support within the department he didn't realize how much they did, right? right? Um, being involved in that, but he said he only got to know it when he was working alongside um, someone in his department for two years. And he said that guy would get a call and he would pull over and he would have to get out of the car and wait until this guy who was doing something in peer support, who someone needed him, uh, called him back in. And then and there would never be a word spoken about what, what the call was, right? And uh, he said he didn't realise how, how important it was or, or what, how much they did. Um, for that, like helping others, and uh, so it definitely is a calling, right? To to want to get into that to help someone, um, be better, right, and well within themselves. Um, so having said that, like, what do you guys do? If you want to share with us a little bit, um, what do you guys do in your communities? Like you said, you go out to departments and you say, "We're here. This is we're here for you." Um, so how would you? How would you, if people are not responding to like actually sharing, right, um, or reaching out, what would you think that would be, might be, I'm trying to start to find a word here, um, what changes could be, could be implemented that would make it easier for a first responder to reach out if they needed help? Uh, I think the main thing is to have the administration the chief and everything behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, my department, my chief made it mandatory that everybody goes to the two-day struggle well class. Oh, I, I just did yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's amazing. So I took one of the, I took one of the first ones in, in, in Brockton. Uh, of course, Rob Schwartz. Rob, mm. Rob is a great guy. Yeah. He's, he's the founder of the, the Semwick unit. And, um, you know, he actually called me and says, Hey, I, I'm, I'm retiring. And I need a you know a new director, and uh, uh, you know would you be interested? I'm like, really, Rob? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then so um, myself and Kelly Chuli from from Bridgewater, we kind of doing it together. So, yeah. but yeah, so the struggle well class, uh, my chief made it mandatory that everybody has to go. The two I absolutely yeah. love yep. that. Yes, yep. absolutely. For sure. So I, I think that's a start is getting the administration behind it. Like if if somebody needs to talk, then then let them talk. And or if you you know, if if we see something that doesn't look right, we need to, you know, be able to, to reach out to somebody and, and not have, you know, the, the stigma of, you know, oh, he's talking to somebody. He, he you know, he he's got issues or whatever and things yeah. like that. Yeah. And that's why it, it's great that it's confidential. Yes, absolutely, mm-hmm. for sure. I love, you You mentioned you brought up Struggle Well. 
Um, we interviewed the CEO, um, uh, Josh Goldberg, yep, right? I heard that one too. Um, yep. Yeah, great yep. guy, right? Is, great, yep. great guy. We yep. were very excited talking. We had us excited talking yeah. to him. And we had, uh, Jay had done the struggle well last year, right? Yep. And uh, we both read the books, yep. um, the, the struggle well book. And then I had an opportunity to be able to attend the struggle well. I was like so nervous. I was full of anxiety because I was the only civilian mm-hmm. in, in the class. Right. And I was like, why the heck did Rob let me come to this <laughs> class? Like, why did he say no? You know, but he said, no, we should be doing these type of things so that families um, can be more aware. But I think because of, of what we do also, he, I wanted to experience it. And I experienced it not as a, an observer, but a participant um, in the class. And uh, I was just afraid that other first responders weren't going to share um, or open up um, because I was there. But... Uh, it, it did not have that. Right. It went a total other direction. So, they all opened up. They they were very welcoming and opened up to me, um, you know, and and in the group and it, and they were very. They opened their arms to me, so I was very appreciative to be able to attend that class and and very yeah blessed. Um, I think that's all a great thing. I love that you said your administration, your chief, yep. has buy in. Yep. When that comes down from the top. Right, and trickles down to let the officers know within the department, I'm supporting you. Um, we're supporting you going through all of this. This is, uh, he made it mandatory that his, the whole department needed to attend the struggle well. That's absolutely amazing. Yep. I that would be the goal, and I know that's what um, you know Boulder Crest. Yeah. That's what they want. They want every department to be trained and struggle well, um, and learning to be able to sort of adapt the tools that you learn there, right? The training that you told that, to and do that in your own life, like those little things that you can pick up to help it make it easier for you um, to be able to share. And then also, you're talking in a, in, in a peer group, right? And right. um, while you're there, so it makes it easier for you also to to start to be able to talk with the peers. Um, like in Semlak, right? right? Yep. Jay, I think it's so interesting. Um, the things that we're talking about right now, like where focus should or could be applied, uh, in a way that that would improve the the culture of first responders to be more open to seeking mental health treatment and and to a better outcome. We're talking about administrative support. Uh, we're talking about confidentiality. These these things that would uh, lead to a, a more open culture in terms of mental health, duty, trauma, understanding, recovery. And it's so interesting because those things exist uh, in, in terms of physical health treatment, right? Like the department provides health care options, um, you know, and, and people want it. People seek out the best health care that they can get. They go to the doctor, there's HIPAA laws. You understand what can be shared um and, and what can't, and you look at the difference between the way first responders will approach a physical injury uh, when compared to how they might approach a mental or emotional injury. And um, I think that these points that you're making are, are, are very relevant, and that mm. is sort of a measuring stick right there too, right? They don't, Linda mentioned earlier, there's, hey, there's still uh, police officers sitting in their cruisers sort of suffering after calls sometimes. There's, there's uh, firefighters that, that will, um, you know, isolate in corners of the station 
Um, and if you come back with a physical injury, what are you doing? You're filling out paperwork and you're going and getting treatment and you're very confident that, that you'll have a positive outcome. Um, so like it, for sure, there's, there's still an awful lot of work to be done, but, and it's also energizing to look at the progress that's been made when, when we look back at 20 years ago or so, but sort of with all that said, um, did did you see a change in the department after all members attended oh, the struggle well program question. with the support of administration in terms of their first of all their understanding about how trauma impacts the human condition and their openness or willingness to seek treatment yeah i think there there was some uh, you know it's not everybody's taken the class yet. It's, it's kind of still going still in like rotation, in, yeah, in, in rotation. You know, and, and the good thing about the two day class is it's not affecting the budget like that. That's a big concern for for chiefs and yeah. you know, like, hey, if I send by somebody the five day class, well, I got to pay overtime. At least a two day class, you can and you get the gist of 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 what the the program is about, and um, you know, yeah, I'm sure we'll see a difference down the road. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, you know, people know it's there. People know what to do, how to get help, you know, how to, you know, like, like, you know, when the, when everybody graduates the class, they get the app. Yeah. So, and, and you too, Jay, they get, yeah. you get the app and you can go on the app and, and yeah. kind of see what everybody's doing and yeah. which is, which is a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, it doesn't end there once you finish the two day, right? right. Um, yeah. it just sort of. That two-day opens the door to continue, right? right? Mm-hmm. Doing what you're doing and allowing yourself to be open, even in the confined space of the app, right? Because not just anybody can get on the app. You have to yep. graduate to, two, to two, yep. at least a two-day, um, which is absolutely amazing. I'm on there all the time, yep. um, connecting with different people, and I post maybe the sunrise coming up in the morning, and I'm like, yep. yeah, I mean, sort of be allowing yourself to breathe and, and take what you learned there and got from there. And, and lean it into your daily life, right? I love the question that Jay, you know, said, I wonder was there any difference, you know, uh, in the department? And I can tell you, if there's any department leaders listening and um, and maybe you haven't started to, you know, introduce some of your first responders to struggle well, I mean... Think of it. Think of just those two words there. Struggle well, right? We all struggle in mm. everyday stresses of our lives, right? And but learn how to struggle well, and that's what that does. It learns first responders to be able to struggle, but take a positive out of that, right? Your life doesn't have to be doom and gloom, uh, and you don't have to s- struggle um, with you know, hardship or. Um, having those mental health challenges, right? But learning how to be able to turn that around and take the positive grow from those challenges. And that's what Struggle Well does. It teaches, you know, how to be able to grow f- and, and learn about yourself from the challenges that you're going through. I think also, I agree with Boulder Crest, every department should be put through this. Every mm-hmm. department. And I know that's their goal. And I, I would love more buy-ins from different departments to be able to start doing that if you haven't if you haven't done it yet. So I just wanted to get that out there. Yep. Um, families. Let's talk about families of first responders. Um, a lot of the time that gets missed. Um, you know, we talk about all the time amongst ourselves um, and with different folks, right? We, t- we talk about how 
uh, first responder family are part of that career, your career, whether you want to be or not, right? Uh, or whether they want to be or not. So um, let's talk about those families, like um, how they could be interact more with departments of first responders so that they're brought up to um, maybe just learn about the trauma that a first responder might see on an everyday basis and sort of be able to be aware of those red flags. Have you any experience like in, in that area, like with families wanting to interact or calling and saying, listen, he's coming home every night, this changes, he's drinking more. Um, he's he's not interacting with the family the way he used to. So I know there's something going on, but he's not talking. He's not talking at home. Um, would would the families be comfortable reaching out, or have they? Yeah. So, uh, so I tw- like we said, we have a 24 hour number. We get a lot of calls from family members mm. that you know that that their loved ones are are in crisis, and we will sometimes we'll do a surprise visit to the house you mm. know they'll consult hey he's home now or she's home now mm. drinking you know and then the the peer the peers will go and they'll evaluate and we always have a clinician available by phone mm. hey this is what i got they may say get him somewhere immediately get her somewhere immediately mm. or um you know hey i'll talk to him in the morning it doesn't seem mm. that like it's that it's like, not red flag. It's not so. a red flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah absolutely. And I love so, that to do that. So yeah, so we do get a lot of calls from family members. Okay. And um I, I love that you the family members know how to be able to reach out to you, right? Because um, a lot of the times those families don't know where to reach out right. to. They don't they really don't know and they don't know who to call. And that has to be so stressful on the relationship, right? The family unit as a whole. Um but also, like, especially either the spouse or the, or the first responder themselves, right, it has to be so um, stressful. Um, so I want to I start to lead into what we're doing. Um, you know, we do the podcast, and I'm very, very big in, in thinking about those families because I'm a family of a first responder that did not know about any of those red flags, right? None of us did. My husband didn't. Uh, none of us did. We, we knew Alex was, you know, struggling, um, but... I. Wow, I mean, I mean, he was going through a lot of personal mm-hmm. stuff, right? So, but none of the red flags that I, I wish I had been debriefed, right? Um, beforehand, this is what your first responder could possibly be going through. Watch out for these red flags, like all of those type of things, so that we could possibly learn how to interact with that person, um, maybe a little bit differently, right? And I'm not saying it. It would have prevented what happened to our family, but it certainly would have been more educated, right, as a family. So we are um, in the process of March 9th, um, and it comes up in all interviews, even with the big organizations that we've talked to, like Boulder Crest. These conversations come up all the time about families. And um, so, and it has deeply affected me um, thinking about how can we support families what we're doing and uh, we decided we were going to put on a family hope family readiness workshop and um, get ready 
get ready for not only for those young new recruits, right? Um, but for first responders and families who might be struggling, or else first responders who are not struggling, but they can also come to that family night and um be able to maybe just have something in their back pocket to help someone in the depart in their own department, but also to support families. So we call it the Hope Family Readiness Workshop. Um, we've invited many, many different modalities, um, different people um, in to join us on that night. And they're going to present about the different, uh, different organisations who they're involved with. Um, and families. Families, we want families, our first responders to come in. We want family, our first responders to come in. Um, and they're going to listen to all of these organisations present. We're just hosting it. The AGK Memorial Fund and Hope Beyond the Badge are hosting it. And um, and they're all going to come in and be able to present. And what we're doing is we're going to put a folder together. They'll all have tables with all different information phone numbers, contact information. We have Onsite Academy coming. We have the leader program coming from McLean. Um, we have a couple of trauma therapists who work with first responders specifically. We have equine therapy. We have um, what have we, we have mindfulness coaching, um, who's also law enforcement but does breath work and um, mindfulness and meditation. And uh, we have a financial coach coming in to help a first responder who possibly might be, um, well, let's put it straight. If a first responder is struggling with mental health and issues and there's a lot going on in their life, I think the last thing they're thinking about is making a car payment, right? And right. and paying off the credit card bills. And that adds up to the stressor that's already in their backpack. And then um, and then they don't know how to get over it. They're overwhelming, right? Um, so we're bringing in also a financial coach, um, who is also going to be able to help first responders be able to start up a plan of starting to put their goals back in, in order and getting their life back on track with that. Um, yeah, we have um, Kathy Minahan coming in from the Wings program. Um, we're trying to get Rob Swartz in too. Um, it's hard to, it's hard to yeah, get him nailed down to commit to me. With to me. Him, yes. Yeah, it's hard to get, get him down to commit, but we have... Um, I'll try for you. Yeah, thank you. Put that word in too. I'm persistent. I, I, I'll keep on tracking him down. We have Joe King come in from Boston Peer Support. Um, you and I coming in. Um, and we have many, many, many other organizations coming in with us. They're all going to present. They're all going to do the whole presentation. The whole idea of that is when there's families there and we want the place full um, is that we're connecting those families to the resources. We're putting the face to the phone numbers. We're taking away, by doing that, I believe we're taking away a lot of the anxiety for the families. We're also taking away that stress um, by connecting them, the family, to the, to the resources right there that night. And they'll be able to mingle at the tables, Jordan Break. They'll be able to go over and, and, and mingle and interact with all those folks at the tables. And then at the end of the night, every family will be leaving with a folder that's that's coming from the AGK Memorial Fund. And um, the, all the folder in there will be all those organisations that they just interacted with. Now they're going home with a folder in their hand. That's powerful, right? Because... What happens then? Maybe they might need it that night. They might not need it. And they might not need it that following week. But if they do, they're going to be able to open up that 
that packet, especially that mm. wife that's calling in, and open up and have those resources right at hand. Um, and I shared with you know the director um, just recently of 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 um, the leader program um, that's affiliated with McLean. Right, I shared with her the, uh, last week. Even the thought of, and I'm just putting myself in that spouse is that spouse's position, um, where she's just after calling into you, but hearing the word McLean, right? Just the name McLean is so it brings up so. Uh, I I even said to Jay a while ago, even the mention of McLean like makes my t- shoulders tense up, um, for that reason. Like and that other first respond or the wife is is saying not my loved one mm-hmm. right he doesn't need to go there no the McLean Hospital no he he doesn't need to go there but when they take the stigma so like that self stigma right of putting on that just even mentioned the word McLean um so by inviting those organisations in right McLean the leader program in and the director herself is able to explain what they do. Oh, that anxiety level has just gone way, way down. Yep. And they actually see the face to the phone number and they get to explain it's not really that bad. Guess what? They're all going to be, they're all here to help that first responder get their lives back on track. So it's a wonderful thing. Um, and that's March 9th. We'd love you to come. Awesome. Um, yeah. And we'd love to share it with your department. We'd love to share it with all the, the cities and towns and police departments um, to get that word out there. We're just about now putting a flyer together, right, Jay? Yes, ma'am. Um, yeah, if you get me a flyer, yeah. I'll, I'll send it to my team yeah. so they can post in the departments. Yeah, absolutely. We would love that. But it's uh, and it's and it's local. It's it's in Weymouth um, that's going to be. And uh, at Sacred Heart Church downstairs mm-hmm. has a big space there. And uh, they're all going to be setting up tables. And mm. we're very, we're looking forward to it. And yeah. all the all the people who we talked to said, it's missing. This type of stuff is missing, and it's needed. So we decided, let's do it. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I I love that you guys do and are able to interact with families. So now we just have to make it easier for you when you invite those families to come along. Right, we're making it easier, and they're going to be able to leave a packet. And it just makes everyone's life easier. You know, the struggles and the trauma that the the first responder is going to see is not going to end they're they're in a trauma job. Mm. They're always going to see it. So there's it's not a matter of if you're going to have um, symptoms of trauma, right, or, or PTSD or whatever. It's just a matter of when yep. um, your backpack is going to fill. Jay, do you want to chime in? Yeah, I, I think that's there. such an important point that you just made. Like if if there's a first responder, a family member listening right now, and you're not having, you're not going through a difficult time, having challenges having traumatic reactions. Um, one of the big hopes for, for this evening is that that uh, people might gain sort of a, a preemptive understanding of the process. So if that moment comes in your life or in someone you care about's life, whether you're, you're a spouse, a family member, or if you're first responder and you see a coworker going through it, that not only do you know what to do, I'm so glad to hear the family members are calling you. That's I mean, that's, yeah. that's measurable progress yes. right there. Still, when I imagine that call being made, I, I imagine there's an element of I don't know what to do. Right? There's right. there's a crisis going on in the family and in the life. I don't know what to do. Yeah. So I called, and what I one of our big hopes for that night is that 
rather when they make that call, they do know what to do because they understand what happens after that phone call, what services are available. In the same way, just to kind of keep the comparative to physical health going, if, if your loved one has a physical injury, you know what to do. It's still difficult, but it's like, yeah, we're going to bring him to the hospital. He's going to get a cast and we're going to get through it. Yeah. Um, and in this case, we hope that they gain an understanding of what resources are available, what the process will look like after the phone calls made, gain some trust in the confidentiality, uh, the mental health providers and, and the process as a whole. Mm, yeah. Absolutely, for sure, Jay. I, I think that yeah, it does eliminate. It takes down um, that anxiety level for the family when they're actually going through a crisis. But I do oh, yeah. love what what um, Kevin shared is that we do have first responder families mm-hmm. reaching out saying we need help. Yep, right. It's awesome. Um, Metro Lec also, and you know, yep. Christine and and Eddie also share that too. You know, they they do have a lot of families. Um, you know struggling um whatever level of struggle that might be and uh, i think that when we have this first responder family workshop um i think it will allow a lot of families to struggle well right <laughs> a little yep. bit better right yeah. <laughs> well done yeah <laughs> so, yep. or, the, or the, you know what or they can struggle together and be able to start healing together right because now we're sort of putting them all on the same page and the fam and the and the spouse is no longer not in the know because she has this information, right? Mm. They have that information, which is a wonderful thing. Um, so yeah, we're very excited. And then, um, do you want to share what you're going to be doing after that, Jay? Uh, yeah. Following following that, um, we're going to be starting up a first responder peer support group right here in Weymouth, um, and. Mm. Yeah, if anybody wants more information on that, they can they can call one of the hope lines. That number will be given out in in the summary. But um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna process the different stresses that first responders face as a culture, duty, trauma, and uh, strive for wellness in that group. Yeah, yeah, and I I just want to share that that will not be advertised at all. Yeah. That will be kept if you're in the know and you're a first responder and you're in the know where that is and and we're not going to advertise that no oh. uh, yeah that that's for that's what reasons Jay, just share that what, for what reasons well um f- it's in the interest of the group conscience and the group uh functionability right we want to have conversations with with uh first responders and understand that they're a good fit for the group that the group's going to benefit them as an individual that they don't need a higher level of treatment or, or some different treatment um, and that the group's going to function well. Yeah. I also think that um, that type of, um, you know, peer support, right? You're supporting each other as peers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also for confidentiality, right? That's why we're not advertising it. We're not going to advertise it, but departments will know about it. And, and we intend to get to that information out there. But for confidentiality, it won't be advertised. Yeah, absolutely. That's a much more direct way of putting it, ma'am. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. but no, I it's absolutely I don't the truth. Cut, I, I, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I cut to the chase, right? I get yeah. right in there. And um, if you are somebody that begins attending that group, I want everybody to feel comfortable uh, that they're not just going to, you know, that space isn't just going to be invaded by, by anyone. Yeah, um, it won't be. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. So, Kevin, if you had um, 
a an opportunity to be part of decision making, right? In in general, in regards to mental health and forced response. And budget wasn't an issue. Because I heard you start saying mm-hmm. there, right, right, yeah. earlier on, yeah. right. Well, there can be a budget and we have to do for yeah. overtime and more overthink. But um by the way, that that struggle well program that you were talking about earlier on, it's it's free for departments, right? right? Um they offer that free to departments. So Take advantage of sending your guys even to the two-day program and rotate them in and out, just like what Kevin's department is doing. But if budget wasn't an issue and you were in in some form of way part of a huge decision-making that could make an improvement within either your own department or in general, what, do you, what, would, you, what would you say, oh, this would, be, this would work really well? What do you think that you would do if you were in that position? Um, I think the main thing would be, hey, we go for a physical checkup every every year. You yeah. Know? Why not do a mental checkup? And mm. and like us on our peer support team, we need to, we're required to do one every year just because we get a lot of stuff thrown at us going to these debriefings and yeah. fusings and these one-on-ones. And so they just want to, so we sit down with one of our clinicians for an hour and we just kind of talk and they, you know, how's it going? And, and just basically kind of a mental mental health checkup. Yeah. So I th- I think the main thing would be maybe to get that as part of the, you know, hey, you're going for physical, why not go for mental health checkup? Mm, I love that. What do you think that that would do? Um, you know, if that was part of the norm, um, I hate to use bring in this mental health program, not to just check off the, right. the check mark, right? right. Um, but um, just making it a normal within the department, right? right. How, what do you think that that would help going forward um, in general in any agency if that was just part of a norm? I mean, I, I think it would help people open up more and discuss, like, hey, you know, there's some people that, that can work that, that don't have any issues, that stuff doesn't affect them. Yeah. But, you know, we also have a lot of veterans that have come back and the police officers and firefighters. Yeah. I mean, I have five on my job, and we're a small department. We're, we're a 25-man department. Mm. And there's, I believe, five that were in... Veterans, in, right? In, yep, they're in Iraq and Afghanistan, things like that. So they're bringing that back, too. Yes. Plus yeah. the, the stresses of the job. Yeah. No, let's play with the water bowl. <laughs> there she goes, just having a drink of water. Yeah, so you know, so you have you have that too with the you know with the veterans and everything. And I think I think giving somebody the opportunity to speak to you know a mental health professional and and just hey, what's going on in your life? What's you know what's happening and mm. and you know things like that. What's happening on the job? What's happening? You know, yeah. things like that. Yeah. I mean, that's that's totally like our goal, right? This is why we started this podcast, um, be, to make it easier for first responders um, to hear, you know, the likes of yourself, the likes of other first responders who have shared their story of struggle, right? But also the journey of healing, right, and wellness um, is to start to make it easier for other first responders to be inspired or maybe gain the courage to be able to to open up and speak a little bit more even within their departments, you know, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, like for a, f- a police officer, you know, it's, well, if I, if, if, 
if I'm not feeling well, well then I have uh, I could lose my job or my gun could be taken away from me. And then if I lose my job, I can't pay my mortgage and I can't, you know, we can't leave. We need a paycheck. Um, and so a lot of them might not share, um, you know, what they're what they're really going through for fear of that, right? right? Um, and there's still that's the stigma, right? Of of why or that again, what you said, weakness, right? And to be honest with you, first responder who has gained the courage to be able to to say I need help, um, you're not weak. Whoever's listening out there, you're not weak. Right. You're a leader. Um, because you're now saying to yourself, you know what, I don't give a damn. And I think a lot of people have to stop giving a damn about what other people think about them um, to to go and seek help and know that you're worthy and, and you are um, deserve to still be able to do your job. And some first responders, and Jake, can you, you can chime in on this a little bit more, but a lot of first responders um, won't go and seek help until it's... They need it, like like crisis, like it sort of gets to a crisis situation before they they go and seek help, right? Um, wouldn't it be lovely for them to be able to sort of foster it in the department to say, oh, "I'm not doing jo- I'm not doing well after this job. I need a I need a couple of days to to start to figure this out in my head to process it." Want to chime in? Both of you can chime in. Well, yeah, for sure. That's that. That was my experience, and an experience I've I've seen in, in many others throughout the culture, uh, for reasons that that make sense, and and I understand. Uh, we often suffer until it becomes intolerable, and then it's you've arrived at at an intersection in life that involves crisis, and and that's when help uh, is sought, and. Um, you know, I, I just think it would be incredible to to see that that line moved to where where people reach out for help in in a more timely manner. Yeah. Um, you know, when the symptoms begin to show up and you begin to become aware something's going on with me, I'm no longer able to experience joy, man. What the heck's going on? And how many yeah. of us walk around for so long with that secret? As we develop more and more symptoms, because as we know, and I'm sure most of our listeners know, trauma is cumulative, right? And it's a reality that Mm. that's what we are. We're trauma responders. We're going into these situations that involve imagery and emotions. And, and, uh, you know, we carry some of that out oftentimes over time to our own detriment. So I think that it would be wonderful to see, you know, that's the next progress is when we when we uh, get to a point where first responders begin to regularly seek out treatment as their symptoms begin arriving rather than suffering silently until they arrive in crisis. Yeah. Those are my thoughts. Yeah. Oh, so true. Want to chime in, Kevin? Yeah. No, I, I do agree with you, Jay. Um, I, you know, you, we see it so often in, yeah. in the team. Like, people reach out, I'm in crisis, I need help, I need help now, I need help now. Why not give them the help? Like you said, when they first when they first have the symptoms, and or even if they don't like like I said, you know, just have do a mental health checkup every year. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, it goes back to the stigma, though. It's like, mm. you know, even even when you have guys in your department, uh, guys or girls in your department that that do go away, and you know, oh, everybody talks, you know. Mm. Yeah. You know. Oh, where where is so and so, and why aren't they here, and yeah. why, why are they out so long? Is what's going on? And, you know, and, yeah. and and I think that is an issue too. Like, 
our guys are, are they're nosy. They want to know what's going on with everybody, and yeah. and it's like just leave them alone and let you know. Hey, maybe they're out sick. Maybe they got something going on. Yeah. So I think that's that's a big issue too. Is that that guys are nosy on the job? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's yeah. What, that's what I mean about like that first responder who is struggling and might need to be out for a little while or right. whatever it might be. Imagine now if it was didn't get to that situation. Right. Right. And I'm I'm just thinking of all these first responders who are listening. Imagine if it didn't get to that situation, right? And it was the first responder was able to reach out for help to whatever might be bothering them well before it got to that stage. And think about the the cost, right, to the department. Right. Oh, yeah. It's better, right? Yep. It's betterment for everybody all around for a department to be able to support that first responder in the early stages of struggle, right? Yes, ma'am. Um, yeah. And, Jay, you, I, you can talk about this a little bit more, right, on, on that situation. But I, I feel personally that a first responder, it's better for the department, better for the community, right, because all that while that that first responder, that police officer, that fireman is not talking and the whole bottling all of that stuff inside, are they really present right. while they're still on the job, right? So um, it's better to be able to get that help earlier on and then get them well and then get them back on, on their job and be able to, you know, get through a long re- career, right, healthy, and and be able to start to be able to manage their life a little bit better. Can you guys chime in on that? Well, yeah, I'm just thinking about uh, when Kevin talked about the the reality of our our culture is nosy, and we have ways that we can see it. Right, you see on the manpower, like there's ways just through the natural interaction of um, of of duty that that we're able to pick up on these things. Um, what if there was no shame? Right. And there's uh, a lot of steps between here and there. But like if somebody got hurt doing something cool, like, oh, so and so's out because they got hurt surfing in New Zealand, wiped out. Right. No, that that whole right. like the the energy in the context around that conversation is so different. And there's no shame involved in that. But, you know, there's there's the intentions of those participating in the conversation and how it impacts the person who's recovering uh, you know, from from that gnarly wipeout while surfing is is so different. So that's you know, if there's a future dream for where mental health and first response is going, that that's part of it right there. Is what if there was no shame? And it's like, yeah, uh. did you hear? So and so went to three or four real bad calls. One of them involved a six year old. You know, he's got a six year old daughter, right? Uh, yeah. So you know. So there's a little overtime for the next couple of weeks or whatever. Like it wouldn't, all the negative associations uh, and connotations with that conversation uh, would be removed along with that element of shame. How do we get from here to there? I don't know, but we'll keep talking about it weekly on Hopi on the badge until we find out. Yeah. Yeah, I I just want to start to relate myself into that, and I'm not first responder, but I when, Ale- when we lost Alex... I have a picture out there in 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 the in the in the cafe, and I remember um, somebody asked me, "Do you know that? Do you know? Do you know that gentleman?" And I'd say, "Yeah, it's our our, our son. It's a family." And um, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. 
I would never mention at the beginning that he died by suicide for fear of being judged, mm. right? Um, and, and that was my own stigma. And very, very quickly I realised, wow, if there, was, if there was other first responders coming in and talking to me, I, I felt that they were sort of sharing a little bit about themselves. Maybe they felt comfortable. Um, but I, re- I realised very quickly that Alex wasn't the only one that was struggling and I needed to stop not talking about it I needed to talk about it and I needed to share how he died um, with no shame right um, of fear of being judged right and I think a lot of of first responders have a fear of being judged right and that shame and of that weakness whatever it is you can put any word in there that relates to you or that you recognize as a stigma. Um, but uh, I just had to drop it. And the relief of that, that I felt of coming acceptance, right? That none of this was our fault. You know what I mean? It, none of it was our fault. It, it, it was just something that happened, right? And do we wish that it was different? Absolutely, yeah. But I needed to drop I need to be able to talk about suicide and not have a fear of saying that word um, so that I can help others, which led us into all of this. Led me and Jay to connect, right? Mm-hmm. And and be able to talk to each other about all of this and share our passions about getting out. And that's how that relationship formed, right? Um, but I just want every first responder to be able to... Um, you are the one that you know has that self-imposed stigma, also, but also a stigma coming from whatever culture you're living within, within the department, as you said, nosy. Um, you just have to stop giving a damn about what people think about you and, and, and you think about yourself and your family and get well. And I'm going to leave it at that for me. Every person that adopts that attitude that you just described, I'm going to take care of me and my family mm. and I'm letting go of what everybody else thinks. I don't care, right? That person will never take play, take part in another conversation condemning someone else yeah. for reaching out for mental health. Right. So exactly. one at a time. Um, that's you know, what I wanted to say. Well, you, you did. Yeah. You, yes, ma'am, you, you did. You just put it in perfect words for me. So um, yeah. that's, yeah, that's, um, that's all I got. Do you have anything else you think we need to discuss? No, I just, I'm just very, very grateful for Kevin to coming in tonight and having... Um, this conversation with us um, about what he does, what he, you know, went through, what he felt that something that he carried with him, right, and and still carries with you today. Um, I just want to just touch a little bit. How do you how do you unpack on an everyday basis? Like, what do you do? Um, you know, I I go to the gym. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I I mean, I like. I like cooking and stuff like that. Mm. You know, can I do a better job of unpacking? Yes, I could. Mm. You know, By doing what? Uh, probably talking more. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not much of a talker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, By know. talking at work or or at home with no, your family? Prob- probably at home. Yeah. 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 Families yeah. want to know. Yeah. Um, maybe not the details, right? You don't have to show the right. details, but you know what? I had a shitty job today. I had a shitty call today, right? Or, or whatever it might be. I had a tough day today. And this is how I'm feeling because of it. 
your family will be able to relate with the feeling part of it, right? Right. Um, and they don't have to they don't have to relate with the calls because they're not first responders. Um, but you can say, "This is how I'm feeling today." Right. And and I I bet that your family will be able to interact with you a little bit more because of that. Um. So yeah, maybe that's something that you continue to work on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I love that. Yeah. Kevin and Nola. Thank you for coming in tonight. Um, I really enjoyed sort of paying attention to Nola all night. Kevin has been feeding her constantly. She's been drinking water <laughs> constantly. And she has a little peach bag. I'm, I'm hoping that we have permission to be able to post her on our Facebook page. Um, yeah. But she's a comfort dog and, and uh, absolutely a beauty too. Can I explain a little bit about Absolutely. That? Please, please do. Please. Yes, I forgot to do so, that. Yes. Um, Plymouth County DA, Tim Cruz, is very big on the comfort dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in Plymouth County right now, we have 16 comfort dogs in the in the cities and towns. And All different departments. And his goal is to get one in every every um, city or town within within Plymouth County. Yeah. Why, um, why is he big on it? Do you know? What's the it, history behind it? So how it really started was in Hingham, Hingham PD, uh, Tom Ford, the school resource officer, <laughs> has Opry. Opry was, uh, he got from a kill shelter, I believe. I'm, uh, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what kill shelter, but it was a kill shelter from a, another state, and uh, he he attempted to get the dog into the schools in Hingham, and the schools gave him a pushback. Like all, so it took him two years to get the dog, but he's the first one that really started the comfort dog program in this area. Yeah, and. Um, and then everybody kind of followed suit, and so. But the DA <coughs> actually gives us startup money mm-hmm. to to get you know to get the dogs and helps us with the training and and all that stuff. And yeah. um, very big and he's very big into it. And then and plus you know the great thing about having the, the comfort dog is I can take her on debriefings and defusings mm. with the peer support. Uh, we actually have a my a my. Um, Peer support. We have three dogs. Oh wow! So, and you so, can take them out to uh, debriefings. Yeah, we'll too. take them to debriefings and things like that. So yeah. and the, they're just there in case people need the the support. But yeah, in the de- within the department also, right? Because she, yep, yep, every time you're on, yep, she's on, yep, right? Yep, she'll roam in the apartment. Show you know people will pet her, and dogs make people smile. Yes. Yeah. And, yes. And, and it's a great it's a great thing. Yeah. And, and um, does she go to schools too? She goes to schools. Yeah. So. When I originally got her, I was the school resource officer, so the whole goal was to have her in the schools. Mm-hmm. Since being promoted, I'm back on patrol, um, so it's but I'm the handler because I, I she's kind of grown up with me and everything, and yeah. Um, so, but I'll still once she's out of her training more, I'll because I go to training during the day, yeah, like Monday, Wednesday, and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, till like noon, one o'clock. So by the time I get home, the schools are kind of over. So once she's kind of done with the training, I'll start getting into the schools more. Yeah. But I go to community events and things like that with her. and Yeah. Um, and I bet so, they all love her. Yeah. So, I mean, at, at the air camp this year, we had, we probably had like 10 dogs up there the whole day at camp. So. Wow. Oh, yeah. The kids loved it. And, yeah. You know. My wife gets her bows and sweaters. And <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. I so. could picture that happening oh, for yeah. sure oh, with yeah. Wendy. Yep. Yep. So it's a great program. And um, well, I just wanted to give a shout out to the DA and, 
you know, a lot more departments. Like, you'll be surprised how many departments across the state are, are doing the comfort dog. Yeah, thing. there's mm. a lot yeah. more of them showing up too. And I just saw it recently on maybe a Facebook page or whatever. All there was lots of different comfort dogs yep. all in the one time, whatever that was, yep. whatever yep. Um, event that was for. But I saw them all together. And you should see her, like, if anyone that's not not able to see her but she's like sitting to attention she's not taking her eyes off him he, if he holds a treat in his hand too long guess what she is like nearly on top of him like trying to get out of his hand um he's giving her directions to sit down right now but um kevin we are very 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 happy to have you in anola it was a pleasure this is our first comfort dog in the studio um, so hopefully not the last and uh, we look forward to continuing to um, support you know Samlak if we can right I think that family night will also be able to um, help you guys and what what we're doing um, but by fr- by providing the resources on that family night and we'll, we'll hopefully get some feedback from mm. from you guys and um, and everyone else who's going to be in attendance so thank you so much for coming in to us tonight awesome. thanks for having me Sergeant Harrington has so much experience behind him in law enforcement. Many of those years working in college and school environments, he was able to connect and be a role model to many students over the years. For that, we thank him. What we felt from Kevin is his calmness. We also feel that his personality is a wonderful feature to have in the world of peer support. He made it easy for us to see how he could be very helpful while interacting with a first responder who's struggling and to the community that he serves. Kevin and Nola have many years to come of supporting others through difficult times. If you're a first responder or a family member who's struggling right now and you don't know where to start, please reach out to one of the Hope Lines at 781-817-3357 or 617-657-9108. Or you can send us an email at either lynda.hopebeyondthebadge at gmail.com or j.hopebeyondthebadge at gmail.com. Till next time. Till next time.